All right, you should get a set of notes on the way in. You'll need some notes to follow along as we continue our series. You mean the Bible teaches that. Today's issue is capital punishment. We're going to get right into it. If you'll turn to page one, what does the Bible teach about this issue? It's been a topic of controversy for many years. Some say murderers should be put to death for their crimes. Others suggest they should spend the rest of their lives in prison. Some see capital punishment as barbaric and even anti-Christian. Others as an only way to preserve justice and social order. There have been laws of all sorts proposed, some passed. There have been great opposition to the death penalty, not only in the U.S., but internationally. The legal and sociological arguments would provide an interesting study, but our primary intent is not that. We want to examine the laws of God in order to see the moral basis, if there is one, for the use of capital punishment. So here are some facts about it in the middle of page one. Worldwide, 58 countries retain the use of the death penalty for a number of reasons, some including sexual crimes such as adultery and sodomy. In the U.S., 30 states as well as the federal government, have death penalty statutes of one kind or another. Michigan was the first state to abolish the death penalty in its borders going back to 1846. Twenty-five people were executed uh, last year. The number of sentences for the death penalty that were imposed was 42. There were over 2,700 people on death row as of last year. And since 76, when the death penalty was reinstated by the Supreme Court, there have been nearly 1,500 people executed. Since 73, there have been 164 exonerations, so people who were on death row but were found to be innocent. And between uh, January and February of 2018 and 2019, there were 28 executions. African-Americans make up 42% of death row inmates, but they are only 13% of the general population. 35% of inmates who have been executed were black. So with those statistics, uh, bullet points number two, three, and four there, about 25 people being executed. Last year, there were uh, 42 sentences imposed. The number of people who are on death row, uh, how many people have been executed, relatively small, given that it's over uh, 40-some years. So given you take all of those together, and you're looking at issues of effectiveness and utilization. How effective is the death penalty if it's going to be used, and is it utilized as it should be utilized? You can see here that it's rarely utilized. In fact, according to the FBI, in 2017, there were over 17,000 murders in the U.S. So assuming that's one of the crimes, if not the only crime, that for which the death penalty would be instituted, if you're going to have it for anything, you would probably have it for that. There were 17,000 potential cases in 2017 where you would have had the death penalty if the criminal were caught and then uh, and then found found guilty, but there were only forty two uh, who were sentenced to death. So seventeen thousand homicides, forty two sentences of death. So you can see that it's very 
very underutilized. And it's not only underutilized, but the process by which it happens is very cumbersome, very long. The average time an inmate remains on death row is 15 years. Since the time of the reinstatement of the death penalty in 1976, there have been an average of 34 executions a year. So in a given year, you might have as many as 17,000 homicides, but in that same given year, on average, you would have 34 death sentences carried out. So there are just some facts that raise issues about effectiveness, utilization, how it's utilized, and how often it's utilized, and then also fairness upon whom it is utilized, because you see the disproportionate number of African Americans who are on death row. Bottom of page one, secular arguments, and then we'll see some religious arguments against capital punishment. And we'll see what the Bible has to say about it. At the bottom of page one, one of the secular arguments is that it's cruel and unusual. And that was the basis for a 1972 Supreme Court decision called Furman v. Georgia that declared the death penalty, as then practiced, to be unconstitutional. Now, why that phrase, cruel and unusual? Here's why. Because the Eighth Amendment to the Constitution uses that very phrase. The Eighth Amendment to our Constitution outlaws cruel and unusual punishments. So then the question is, what kind of punishments constitute cruel and unusual? And how you answer that, how you decide what constitutes cruel and unusual is going to depend on how you approach interpreting the Constitution. So like abortion, the issue of abortion that we saw a couple of weeks ago very much depends on your interpretational approach. If you interpret through the contemporary standards, the standards of today, well, then you may come up with one answer. If you can't use an approach toward interpreting the Constitution that tries to look at its original context, then you'll likely come up with another. Let me give you some examples. The First Amendment to the Constitution says, Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. So that's our very first protection in the very first amendment in the Constitution. That is uh, religious freedom. But you all know that one of the ways that that's been interpreted is as separation of church and state, meaning that there can be no religious expressions in, in government. And yet, if you look at the time that that was adopted... <laughs> There were religious expressions in government all over the place. So the people who adopted the First Amendment didn't think it meant that. They clearly did not think it meant that you could have no no mention of God, no mention of the Bible, no mention of religious matters in, in government. That would be an original context approach. What did they mean by it so that we can apply it then? today. But if you take an approach that says there can be no mention of God, then you're clearly not taking that original context approach. You're taking a contemporary standards approach. Same thing is true in the issue of abortion. Two weeks ago, I told you that uh, the decision in 1973 that made unconstitutional all of the laws against abortion in all of the states was based upon, this is a quote, penumbras formed by emanations from the First Amendment. 
And you can go back a couple of weeks, listen to the audio, and I explained what penumbras means and emanations means. But here was my summary. It means it ain't in there. <laughs> and so when you have to resort to penumbras formed by emanations, then you're sort of making it up. And then with this issue of cruel and unusual, it's a phrase in the Constitution, Eighth Amendment, but what does it mean? As I say, if you use contemporary standards, then it would be what do we think today cruel and unusual would be? But if you go to an original context approach, if you look at bottom of page one in the parentheses, interestingly enough, the original framers of the Constitution lived in a society that practiced the death penalty, and in fact, in far more barbaric ways than anything that was practiced in 1972 and certainly today, and they did not see it as cruel and unusual. And so the death penalty to be declared unconstitutional, can't, that can happen if you're taking an original context approach because in the original context, the people who wrote it were actually practicing it. Top of page two. Another argument against capital punishment is it does not deter crime. Statistics are cited that in countries or states without capital punishment, violent crime rates, including homicide, are lower that it is retribution, and so it serves no purpose other than legalized vengeance, that you can't actually, you can't teach that killing is wrong by killing someone, and that it's applied, as we've seen some statistics for on the previous page, in a racially discriminatory fashion. So let's look at what does the Bible say about capital punishment. Old Testament passage is clearly commanded. Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. Now notice the way that's worded. Whoever sheds man's blood, he is going to, by the hand of man, have his blood shed as well. Meaning, that it's not something that God directly is necessarily going to carry out, but God is delegating that authority to humanity to do. So that's a delegated authority to government to carry out execution on those who execute another human being. But why? Notice the last phrase. For, here's why, because in the image of God, he made man. Now, in the paragraph that follows, we say that this now is giving a universal principle. And the reason we're saying it's a universal principle is because of that image of God idea. How long will, does the image of God last in humanity? It was operative clearly in Je- when Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 was written. When the time, in the time of Noah, so before it was written, going back to the time it was written about, Genesis chapter 9 is the time of Noah and the flood. And God says this there. After the flood, after the the ark, after saving Noah and seven others, God says this is in part the way my world is going to be governed. So the image of God was clearly in place at that time. And anybody who violates the image of God in murder is going to be murdered themselves. And be murdered by the hands, or is going to be executed, I should say, by the hands of God's delegated authorities. But is the image of God still in place? And of course, the answer is yes. And so as long as the image of God is in place, this is a universal principle, that God cares about his image, and he cares about his image so much that he prescribes this punishment. So that paragraph, 
Middle of page two. Murder is wrong because it destroys one made in God's image. Therefore, we can see that capital punishment is based on the Genesis account of creation, where we're told that we, humanity, were made in God's image. Just after the flood, God established this universal principle that stamping out the image of God requires the just penalty of life. It's important to note that this command of God is not part of the Mosaic law, but rather a universal principle. So even though Moses wrote the first five books of your Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, even though he wrote Genesis, even though he wrote Genesis 9, 6, that verse, and recorded that principle, that principle was actually given centuries before Moses. And Moses is recording what God said to Noah centuries before. So sometimes when you read something in the book of Genesis, and because Genesis was written by Moses, you think that's part of the law of Moses. But in fact, in Genesis, Moses isn't even around yet. Moses is writing for us things that happened before he was ever born, that God communicated to him for our benefit. You don't have Moses until the second book. Exodus records his birth and then the career of Moses. So this command then in Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6 is not part of the Mosaic law, and that's important because we know that we are no longer under the law of Moses. So if it were part of the Mosaic law, that would then raise the question, was that something temporary that has been done away now that we're in the New Testament? But that's not applicable because it's not part of the Mosaic law. Second paragraph there. But under the Mosaic law, Given to Israel, capital punishment was instituted for many offenses beside murder. Note that in, though, a capital case, two or three witnesses of the crime were required for conviction. You see Deuteronomy chapter 19 and verse 15 cited there. So in the way this was carried out under the Mosaic law in the nation of Israel, God cared very much, and he still cares very much, that whoever is carrying out capital punishment, do it with the utmost fairness and with every safeguard put in place to ensure the guilt of the person who is so sentenced. Now, the two or three witnesses were a safeguard against someone simply having your word against mine and then a judge, someone adjudicating that and who may be favorable toward the person making the accusation against the one uh, who it's made, against whom it's made, And so takes their word and the person is executed. They may be lying. And so God requires that there be two or three witnesses further. If one of the witnesses is found to have been lying, they get the death penalty. So testifying in court, and and especially in a capital offense case, was a very, very serious matter. This is an aside. Jesus takes this in the New Testament in Matthew chapter 18. And Jesus quotes that verse from the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 19 and verse 15. Matthew chapter 18, some of you are familiar with, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go to him and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he hears you, you've won your brother. But if he will not, Jesus says, take who? Take two or three others. Well, why take two or three others? Jesus says, So that, and then he quotes this verse, so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. It's so that no one is found guilty, in this case, of some sort of sin, but that no one is declared to be guilty about that unless there's actually corroborating evidence of that. That there are witnesses to what is alleged to have happened. 
there aren't witnesses to what was alleged, then you can't move forward to what Jesus says next. If he will not hear them, then tell it to the church. Well, you don't tell it to the church unless you have the goods. And you get the goods by the two or three witnesses. So that may raise in your mind, well, then what if nobody saw it? I know it. They know it. They're guilty. They won't acknowledge their guilt. They're going to get away with it. But see, forgive the grammar, ain't nobody getting away with nothing. Because there are always at least two witnesses um, other than the offender. There's the person who bore the brunt of the offense. And then, of course, there's the all-seeing eyes of God. And so you entrust that to God. And the church cannot take action unless there is, uh, there is corroborating evidence, documented evidence. And if there is, Jesus says, then you put that person, if they refuse to repent, that person is no longer part of the church. But it's only on the basis of at least two or three witnesses. One last comment on that. It's in Matthew chapter 18 where Jesus goes through that. If your brother sins, go to him. If he will not hear you, take two or three others so that every word might be established in the presence of two or three witnesses. If he will not hear them, tell it to the church. And if he won't hear the church, then you treat that person as if their profession of faith is invalid. Jesus tells us, but then uh, in verse 20 of Matthew chapter 18, he says, uh, for where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am with them. Now, how have you heard that verse quoted over the years? Where two or three are gathered in my name means to many people, we've got community groups tonight. If only two people show up at your community group, don't worry about it because Jesus is there with you. Now, that's true. Jesus is there with you. So that's a good thing. But in the context, the two or three goes back to the two or three just a few verses earlier. And it's a warning by Jesus saying, please understand as I give this, that when this process is carried out, it's a solemn process that has been given my authority. It's been given, delegated to you to carry out. And when you do this, you have my presence, you have my stamp of approval on this process. Where two or three are gathered gathered together. So the Old Testament clearly commands it. Bottom of page two, the New Testament passages clearly expect it. Top of page three, you have Romans chapter 13. If you do evil, be afraid. For it, and in the context, in the verses prior to that, is the governing authorities. So in Romans chapter 13 and verse 1, be subject to the governing authorities. And then Paul, who wrote it, goes on to say, because the governing authorities are given to you by God, they are put in place by God to be a minister to you for good and to punish evil. So you should be thankful for government, says Paul, says the Bible says God. Let me just stop, let that sink in for a minute. Be thankful for government. Now, what about if it's a bad government? Well, when Paul wrote that, you had a really bad government. As a matter of fact, eventually Paul would be executed by that very government. Unjustly. And yet he says, be subject to. Be subject to why? Because it is better to have a bad government than no government. Because in a fallen world, 
If evil is allowed to run rampant, then this planet would be unlivable. And so God gave government, and God gave government as a good gift to us in a fallen world. And one of the things he gives government to do, Romans, top of page 3, if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it, the government, does not bear the sword for nothing. For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So the government has been given by God the sword to carry out justice. So rulers are ordained by God, we say at the top of page 3, to carry out justice. The sword is not just an image of that, but a tool to be used in the service of God by governmental authorities to punish those who do evil. At the time this verse was written, capital punishment was a common practice and the New Testament does not take issue with it. Now again, how you interpret that then is going to depend on do you take an original context approach. And as you look at the Bible, I think everyone here would agree that that's the approach we're supposed to take. If we want to know what it meant means, we need to know what it meant. What it meant first at the time it was written. What was the context? How did they understand the words? So that we can then make application of it. But it doesn't mean something different today than it meant then. I would suggest to you to just consider... I mean, I care how you interpret the Bible. I care less how you interpret the Constitution, but I still care as a citizen. And I would just suggest to you that you consider doing the same thing as you look at the Constitution or any document for that matter. First, ask yourself, what did it mean to the people who wrote it? And then deal with the issues of applying it in our day. So here in the New Testament, the Bible says the government has been delegated by God with the authority of executing people. That's what the sword was a tool for when appropriate. It's a related issue. You know, is it ever then okay to, to kill someone? In capital punishment it is. If safeguards have been taken to make sure the person is guilty, if the punishment mits, fits the crime, then yes, the government can do that. Is it okay to kill someone in self-defense. You might just jot down if that's a question for you. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22 verses 36 and following. Luke 22 verses 36 and following. And in Luke 22, Jesus is sending some of his followers out and he's giving them instructions about what they should take with them when they go. And guess what one of the things he tells them to take with them is? A sword. Now, unless you think the sword was to file their nails, <laughs> traveling was very treacherous, was very difficult. All kinds of bandits out there. You didn't have police stations all over the place. You didn't have paved roads like we have and lighted lights and all that stuff. So you take a sword. And they say to Jesus, they actually say, hey, we've got two. He goes, okay, that's enough. But make sure you take with you for the purpose of self-defense on these travels as you go out in your evangelistic enterprise. Jesus recognized, top of page 3, the power of governmental authorities over the lives of citizens. Pilate said to him in John 19, You do not speak to me? 
Do you know that I have authority to release you and I have authority to crucify you? Jesus answered, now notice this, you would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. So again, Pilate does in fact have delegated authority. Whether he uses that authority properly is a whole other matter, but he does indeed have delegated authority. He has it from whom? He has it from above. In fact, the very word authority, we get our, it's related to our word authorize. So there's a difference, a major difference between power and authority. Power is the ability to harm someone. Authority is the right to do that. When you have someone who has power but not authority, that's like, that's like a robber. That's like somebody that says, here, I've got a gun. If they've got a gun, they have power, right? But they don't have authority to say, give me your money. But authority, the government has both power and is authorized to use the power by God. Romans 13, Jesus assumes as much and says as much in John 19 to Pilate and also in 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. 1 Peter chapter 2 and verse 13. So the government not only has power, but it also has the authority to carry out justice upon wrong wrongdoers. Therefore, we see that God's system of moral justice is the same in both Testaments. While the Mosaic Law is no longer directly enforced, the general principle given to Noah is, and it requires capital punishment for murder. The New Testament, including the teaching of Jesus, does not overturn this, but supposes its continuing validity in all societies. Now note, many will argue that prison and punishment should serve the cause of rehabilitation. Justice, though, is the primary reason for capital punishment. So what God is interested in, hear this now, because God, one of the attributes of God's character is justice. In fact, the very words in your New Testament, righteousness and justice, they're the same terms. God is, God is concerned to see that right is done. And so justice is required for that. For our sin, God, God's justice requires that our sin be punished. And if it's left at that, we're hopeless. Because we can't make the payment. We can never satisfy the demands of God's justice. But that's what the cross is all about. God satisfying those demands for us in Jesus. The same thing is true, friends, in personal disputes. You know, it is right and it is biblical. When you have wronged someone and you have defrauded them in some way, when you go to them, you make that right and you say, will you forgive me? And the answer, the right response should be, yes, I forgive you. But also, if you destroyed something of mine in the process of doing whatever it was you're asking forgiveness about, guess what you should do? You should fix my stuff. That's part of the demands of, of justice, and God cares about justice. Now, if God cares about justice and you need to make it right, but you've taken somebody's life, how do you make right taking somebody's life? You have nothing, there's nothing more that can be given than life. But God says that's what will be given. If you intentionally take someone's life in murder, then your life will be given because God cares about justice. 
So here are some general principles supporting this idea. Middle of page three. God has the right, of course, to take human life. God was involved directly or indirectly in the taking of life as a punishment for the nation of Israel or for those who threatened or harmed Israel. In the case of Noah, God destroyed all human and animal life except that which was on the ark. God destroyed the people of Sodom and Gomorrah. He took the lives of the Egyptians' firstborn sons. He destroyed the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. There are punishments such as the punishment at Kadesh Barnea as well. Or the rebellion of Korah in Numbers chapter 16. The Old Testament is packed with references and examples of God taking life. In a sense, God used capital punishment to deal with Israel's sins and the sins of nations surrounding. So God engages in capital punishment himself, but that's God doing it directly. Bottom of page 3, but God has delegated legitimate authority to human government. One aspect of that is the power and right, the power and authority to punish evildoers. So when Romans 13 speaks of that authority, it uses this expression, the sword. And then top of page four, capital punishment is based on the biblical principle of the sanctity of human life. Since man is made in the image of God, man's life has value and purpose. To end an innocent human life is immoral. So we demonstrate the value and sanctity of human life by just punishment. And God gives this principle It's a principle going back to the Mosaic law. An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Now, what what does that mean in context? Why is God giving that? God's giving that in Latin called the lex talionis, which means the law of retaliation. And God gives that. You hear that, eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. And it sounds cruel, like, you know, you take my tooth out, I'm getting, I want you. I want a piece of your dental work as well. But what what God's actually saying is that the punishment should fit the crime. It was actually a safeguard. The law of retaliation was to protect people from, in fact, cruel and unusual punishments. From exacting a punishment that was much greater than the crime. So God says, whatever punishment is meted out is going to need to be in keeping with the crime that was committed. But if the crime is life then the punishment is life. Now, there are religious objections, page 4, to capital punishment. There's Jesus in the case of the woman who was caught in adultery. The Old Testament required for adult punishment, requirement for adultery is death for both parties. Yet it seems in this case, Jesus did not enforce the punishment that was proper. Therefore, some argue That Christians should be more interested in forgiveness and mercy than in just punishment for crime. But notice this. According to the law, the death sentence could be carried out only if you had two or three witnesses, as we talked about. In this case, no one brought any charge against the woman. Jesus said that he didn't come to abolish the law of Moses, but to fulfill it. He followed it quite strictly. If the witnesses would have testified against the woman, the people would have had, in fact, a right to stone her. Jesus says, who is it that comes and condemns you? And there was no one. And further, next paragraph, this was a trap anyway. They were hoping that Jesus would upset either the Romans or the Jewish people. If he insisted on the death penalty as required by law, he'd be ignoring Rome's authority, which reserved the right of execution for itself. But if he failed to enforce the death penalty, he'd be breaking the requirements of the Old Testament law. Jesus' actions in this case avoided both of those potential problems. 
Secondly, the Bible's teaching on forgiveness and grace. Some argue that capital punishment's unchristian because it ignores God's forgiveness through Christ's death. Christ fulfilled the law for all men. He died on the cross for all sin. Therefore, men are no longer punishable for their sins or crimes if they seek forgiveness. This is a misunderstanding of grace and forgiveness. Forgiveness does not remove the consequences. God may forgive a drunk driver for his sin, but if in his drunk driving he hits someone else and kills them, that won't necessarily get him back his driver's license, and it certainly won't bring that dead person back back to life. So there are consequences, and any payments that go with those consequences need to be made right. But then there's Jesus talking about turning the other cheek. But remember, the object of capital punishment is justice, not revenge, which is what Jesus was addressing. A Christian ought always to have an attitude of forgiveness and never of vengeance. The Bible says, vengeance is mine, says the Lord. But Jesus is speaking to individual Christians. He's not denying the power of the the government, the very government that he, God, instituted, going back to Genesis 9. And then as we've seen in Romans 13, says this is the kind of power that is delegated to it, 1 Peter 2.13 as well. He calls individual Christians to love their enemies, but he's not overturning capital punishment. What about one of the Ten Commandments that is often quoted as thou shalt not kill? But you would be better off, we would all be better off if we, and, and it says in your NIV, it doesn't say you shall not kill. It says you shall not murder. You see, not all killing is murder. All murder is killing, but not all killing is murder. Every taking of a life is not murder. Taking of a life in self-defense is not murder. Taking of a life in a justified, a just war is not murder, according to the Bible. So not every taking of a life is, is murder. But murder is taking of a life unjustly. So that then is going to answer another question uh, we have later in your notes, which is how can you be pro-life and at the same time pro-capital punishment? Well, here's how. In fact, uh, capital punishment, Genesis 9-6, is based on a very pro-life position. (laughs) It's because God cares about life, because God cares about the life of humanity, which alone bears the image of God. It's because God cares about that that he institutes this punishment. And further, there are, there's a major difference between abortion and capital punishment. Both are the taking of a life, but not both are murder. Abortion is taking an innocent life. Capital punishment is taking a guilty life, and thus is justice. And so, Many people who say that you can't be pro-life and be pro-capital punishment, they've heard the Ten Commandments quoted as you shall not kill, which means the taking of any life is wrong, but the Bible does not teach that the taking of any life under any circumstances is wrong. There are exceptions to that. Murder is the taking of a life unjustly, and that's what abortion is. And so you can be, indeed, pro-life and pro-capital punishment. Page 5, number 5. Capital punishment is prone to abuse. Some say that it's inevitable that innocent people will be put to death. And we've already seen that God said for capital offenses, there have to be safeguards to make sure that the person is is guilty. And so here in this session, I'm not talking about policy 
I'm not talking about what laws should be passed and how this should, should be carried out other than to say this, if you're going to do this justly, then it's also going to have to be done fairly. It's going to have to be administered only to people who you are certain are guilty. And so every precaution needs to be take, taken to make sure that you have a guilty person who has committed the uh, crime of, of murder or whatever other capital offenses there may be, but certainly for murder. Number six, capital punishment is racist. A higher percentage of ethnic minorities are on death row. That's true. It's true that there are more on death row. We saw the stats. So if you're going to be fair about it, you're going to have to make sure that the person actually did what they're accused of. And further, anybody who does the same thing ought to be similarly accused and taken to court, no matter the color of their skin. So if we're going to have just policies with regard to this, they're going to have to be equitably enforced. Now, next week, we are going to be looking at what the Bible teaches about race. And so we'll talk about some of that at that time. Number seven, capital punishment's barbaric, inhumane, and so on. But God sanctions it, so the accusation is made ultimately against against God. And then the death penalty does not deter crime. But again, I remind you that the purpose that God has in the death penalty is justice. And so even if it were true that the death penalty does not deter crime, and there are statistics used to, to say that, even if that were true, it still would negate the Bible's uh, sanction for uh, allowance for capital punishment because it's for the purpose of justice. But I would just say this. My theology professor, Dr. McCune, used to say, you know, um, capital punishment most definitely, he used to say, does deter crime because it eliminates criminals. <laughs> okay. <laughs> And so, I mean, Dr. McCune was just known to be very blunt about these things. And uh, obviously there's truth to that. Last page. Can you be pro-life and pro-death penalty? I've already dealt with that. So our conclusion is capital punishment shows a very high regard for innocent human life. Man is so valuable as an individual that anyone who tampers with his sacred right to live faces the consequence of losing his own. The death penalty protects society from the hardened murderer, and is an appropriate and fitting punishment for the most heinous of crimes. As we've seen, the Bible as a whole supports it. While capital punishment must be used with great care to ensure that innocent people are not put to death, and while we must do all we can to assure fairness in its application, Scripture makes it clear that capital punishment shows the value of human life, the image of God in man. Now, just a few final comments and we'll be done. But God values humanity so greatly that he would say this is the punishment that someone will suffer if they take one of these image bear the life of one of these image bearers of mine now god cares about that why why does god care so much about the life of a human being i mean god doesn't care like that about the life of an animal he doesn't institute these kind of principles for people, for creatures that are not made in the image of God. It's focused on people who are made in the image of God. Why do you think that is? The reason is this. That whole idea of the image of God is a huge notion in Scripture. It starts in chapter 1 of the Bible. As the Bible story moves forward, it's in the background throughout. That when you're dealing with God's crowning achievement in creation, you're dealing with 
the sole creatures who I, God, have made to reflect me back to me. So when you harm one of these, you're in effect harming me. So God takes it seriously. And God takes any offense committed by his image bearers or against his image bearers extremely seriously. Why? Because God takes himself very seriously. So any sin you commit against another brother or sister, against another person, God takes it very seriously. Any sin committed, offense committed against you, God takes very seriously. And so, anything that we do to people on a horizontal plane, anything that we do directly or indirectly that harms humans made in the image of God, God takes extremely seriously. Now, the reason I'm belaboring that is this. This is why God requires the punishment of death for sin. The wages of sin is what? And God's going to execute capital punishment directly on all sinners. Because he cares about his image. He cares about preserving that image. And so every sin that's done directly or indirectly that harms that, ultimately, one day, God is going to execute capital punishment on that. So what's the solution? The solution is what Pastor Matt was talking about this morning. It's the cross. It's the gospel. That's what transforms. That's what forgives. That's what provides the justice and alone provides the justice carried out in order to cover our sins against one another, ultimately against God. And so, friends, I urge you to take this idea of the image of God, not only in yourself, but in all of humanity, whether Christians or not, brothers or sisters or not, all of humanity, God takes it. Deadly, seriously, literally, deadly, seriously. And further, understand that the gospel is the answer to that. The gospel is the answer to that forgiveness that you need, that I need, because we have all violated the image of God in ourselves and in others. Let's bow together. Our Father, we thank you for this Lord's Day, the opportunity to have gathered as your people to worship you. We thank you for allowing us to sing praise to you, to pray to you, to give back to you, to hear from your word, to hear about the beauty of the gospel message, the radical reorientation that the gospel brings to the community of faith. I thank you for that which is represented here and in this room with these brothers and sisters. Lord, we thank you that you called us, as we've seen, you've called us from all backgrounds. There's nothing that we bring to the cross other than our sin. And we place our faith in you. And Lord, you take seriously every offense against those that you cherish. You cherish humanity above all of your creatures because we were designed to reflect you back to you. And so, Lord, we thank you for reminding us of that in the punishments that you mete out. In, in, remi- in reminding us, commanding us even, to take seriously violations against the image of God in humanity. But we thank you most of all for your solution to the problem of sin.
by Jesus dying on the cross for our sin and paying the penalty for that so that the capital punishment that you are going to execute upon all outside of Jesus in the future does not have to be done to anyone in this room. That all can find safety in the death of Jesus on their behalf. And so we would ask you that that anyone who came into this room today not knowing you, not having a relationship with you through Jesus Christ, that that would be established in this sacred moment. That they would understand that their sin has separated them from you, that Jesus has died to reconcile humanity, God's image bearers, to the image, to the one whose image we bear. Today would be the day of their salvation. Lord, go with us this week now as we serve you. We ask you to grant us safety. Help us to represent you accurately in the spheres of influence into which you take us. And bring us back safely next Lord's Day. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.